It's put on the tabernacle around the tabernacle. It's God saying, look, you're either for me or you're against me. And those are some sobering words, but that's exactly what God asks of each one of us. Are you in? Are you like, look, I'm with Jesus. I'm putting my faith and trust there. He died for me. And that, that's the entry point right there. That's the whole thing. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no sitting on the tabernacle court fence. You're either in or you're out. There are many areas of life where we don't necessarily have to pick a side. We can just float by with indifference to politics or appearance or any number of things. Some areas of our lives, however, require that a choice be made. And Jesus is one of them. Today, Pastor Daniel will speak about the line of demarcation around the tabernacle. There was no middle ground. And just like with Jesus, you're either all in or all out. Now, here's Pastor Daniel as he continues his series entitled, Construction. Each one of us needs to give a measure of our appearance for God's cleansing. Remember, that's what the labor was there for. The priest would cleanse their hands with water. And I believe that God wants each one of us, as we view ourselves, the way we present ourselves physically to allow God to cleanse us because we all have warped views of ourselves from a body perspective, from a beauty perspective. That Dove commercial where people met people outside and a woman came in and she's sitting before an artist and she describes herself and the picture is one way. And then the people who met her outside describe her another way. And it's interesting that the people who, who described her and the artist rendering looked much more like her and the one that she felt about herself was much more, was not as inappropriate, uh, and it was a much uglier version. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just go Google, do the, the you're more beautiful than you think by Dove. And, but what's fascinating is that all of us, because of our fallenness, end up viewing ourselves in a way that is not honest. All of us do. All of us. We all have brokenness in our self-image. And I believe that one of the things God does in his redemptive plan, not only for females, but for men as well, comes and say, look, I want to show you who you really are. I want to cleanse your self-image. And I want to cleanse it in accordance with the way that I see you. And what's beautiful and terrifying about God's view of us is we're simultaneously more beautiful than we ever imagined. And we're also more hideous than we ever imagined. But our hideousness is not outward, it's actually inward. God's honesty says that we are more beautiful than we ever dreamed and we're also more prone to horrible things than we ever dreamed. And they both rest simultaneously in the human heart and that is why God came to save us. To unlock the beauty and to curb the evil that's within all of us. So I think it's a, a phenomenal picture here that the women offered their mirrors for the creating of the bronze laver. We don't find that anywhere else. We find it right here. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. These are the only two pieces of furniture that are in the court of the tabernacle. Now, in verse 9, we get the making of the, the court 
curtains and the fencing around it. It says in verse 9, Then he made the court on the south side. The hangings of the court were of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long, and there were 20 pillars for them with 20 bronze sockets, the hooks of the pillars, and their bands were silver. On the north side, the hangings were 100 cubits long. And with 20 pillars and their 20 bronze sockets, the hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And on the west side, there were hangings of 50 cubits with 10 pillars and their 10 sockets, the hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. On the east side, the hangings were 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate were 15 cubits long with their three pillars and their three sockets. And the same for the other side of the court gate. On this side and that were hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. All the hangings of the court all around were of fine woven linen. The sockets for the pillars were bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands were silver. And the overlay of their capitals was silver. And all the pillars of the court had bands of silver. The screen for the gate of the court was woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. And of fine woven linen, the length was 20 cubits, and the height along its width was 5 cubits, corresponding to the hangings of the court. Verse 19, And there were four pillars with their four sockets of bronze. Their hooks were silver, and the overlay of their capitals with their bands were silver. All the pegs of the tabernacle and of the court all around were bronze. Now, all of this we saw in Exodus chapter 27, verses 9 to 19. We're looking at everything that's around it now. The tabernacle sits towards the back, and there's a lot of room around it. So it was designed for people to congregate in. That's what it was designed for. The curtains existed to... St- there's a line of demarcation between those who worshipped Yahweh and those who did not. And that's one of the things in the Bible that the contemporary person really struggles with. That the Bible places a very specific line of demarcation between those who believe in the true and living God and those who do not. And our culture struggles with it in a lot of ways because we're coming out of a time where philosophically it's called postmodernism. And, in po- and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're, you're probably better off. Because what's interesting, if you read about postmodernism, people who are postmodern don't even know what it is. It's part of the problem of postmodernism. But in postmodernism, really, you don't know what truth is, you don't know what reality is, you don't know what real is. It's the nihilism of, of late enlightenment put into the average person. So how many times you talk to someone and you say, well, the truth is, is you can only go 45 on that road. And someone says, well, that's your truth. There's no such thing as individualized truth. There's no, you know what's interesting about when someone says, well, that's your truth? They're making a truth claim as well. It's a, fa- it's a fascinating conundrum that people have. And so because of this thing where nobody knows what truth is, people are like, well, I can't tell you what the truth is because who knows what it is. So what's interesting is a, a truth claim that you can't know truth is the overriding truth claim. And so because we don't know what truth is, nobody likes to say who's in or who's out. But listen, I'm here to tell you, God has absolutely no problem saying who's in and who's out. God doesn't ask us to say who's in and who's out, but God gives us a very clear understanding. This is what it means to be in or out. You are either in the fence or you're outside of it. It's that simple. You either walked in to worship Yahweh or you stayed on the outside. And that line of demarcation 
for people today is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where it is. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. You read the teachings of Jesus, just take him at his word. He got killed for saying these things. So no, he wasn't very popular when he said these things. But he places a very specific line in the sand. And anybody who is truly allowing Jesus to have his do not filter Jesus through your own goggles, but say, this is what he says, and this is what it means... Jesus doesn't allow a gray area. And believe me, I wish he did. I like gray areas just like the next person. But Jesus doesn't allow for it. Not in what makes somebody in or out. I've heard it said, and I've used it before, you're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in the spirit or you're in the flesh. You either enter by the narrow gate or the wide gate. And the narrow gate, it's a difficult way. Few find it and it leads to life. Or you enter by the wide gate where there's a lot of people and it leads to destruction. Jesus is very cut and dry with these things. He's very cut and dry. And I believe it's very important for us to allow Jesus to be cut and dry and not be afraid of the reality of what's right and wrong. If you're here today, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, you need to. If you give every single spiritual teacher their due, you will believe in Jesus because Jesus is the only one who says, believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. He's the only one. So if you say, I want to believe in every spiritual teacher, they all end up pointing to Jesus. If you say, look, Muhammad, what he says, I'm going to say that that's true. What the Buddha said, I'm going to say that that's true. What Confucius said, what your parents say. You give everyone their due, the only person who says to worship them is Jesus. He's the only one. So give everyone your due, get saved, and God will fix everything else. That's what he did for me. I'm like, look, I'm going to stop fighting against the reality that you're either in with Jesus or you're outside. If you say, look, Jesus, I want to be with you, then your name gets on the guest list, not only for later, eternity, but for an abundant life right now. Now, I realize that's an offensive statement in this day and age, but that's what Jesus says. And that's why scholars and apologists, people have said, look, either Jesus is out of his mind, he's a total liar, or he's the Lord. Like, you either get he's a lunatic, he's an, he's an absolute liar, or he's God. There's really only, if you take his teachings, there's, that's the only way you come down. Either Jesus is out of his mind, He has a serious lying problem, or he's who he says he is. So that line of demarcation, it's put on the tabernacle, around the tabernacle, because God's saying, look, you're either for me or you're against me. And those are some sobering words, but that's exactly what God asks of each one of us. Are you in? Are you like, look, I'm with Jesus. I'm putting my faith and trust there. He died for me. And that, that's the entry point right there. That's the whole thing. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no sitting on the tabernacle court fence. You're either in or you're out. My pastor used to always say, Daniel, no decision is a no decision. If you have people like, hey, I'm not going to make a decision right now, that's a no decision. And Jesus gives all these parables about... When the bridegroom comes and the virgins don't have oil in their lamps and they're not there and they're not allowed in. Or the people who come in and they're invited to the feast and they don't want to come. There's all these different parables Jesus gives about the exact same thing. Say, you got to get in. And when you're in, you got to stay in. But if you're not in, when it happens, you're out. 
That's what this is all, that's what these courts, this fencing is all about. Now look at verse 21. We get all the different materials, and this is a general fulfillment of Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. Look what it says. This is the inventory of the tabernacle, verse 21. The tabernacle of the testimony, which was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the servants of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, the son of Asimach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and designer, a weaver of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine linen. Verse 24, all the gold that was used in all the work of the holy place, that is, the gold of the offering, was 29 talents and 730 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And the silver from those who were numbered of the congregation were a hundred talents and 1,775 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A bika for each man, that is, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone included in the numbering from 21 years old and above, for 603,550 men. And from the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the bases of the veil, 100 sockets from the 100 talents, one talent for each socket. Then from the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars, overlaid their capitals and made bands for them. The offering of bronze was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. And with it, he made the sockets for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the bronze altar, the bronze grating for it, and all the utensils for the altar, the sockets for the court all around, the bases for the court gate, and the pegs for the tabernacle, and all the pegs for the court all around. Now, there's a couple things in here. First, I want you to notice this, that in verse 24, it says that there is 29 talents of gold. Now, a talent equaled around 70 pounds. Okay? So if you do the math, it's a little bit more than a 2,000 pounds of gold. Now, those of you who like that kind of thing, go on Google and see how much 2,000 pounds of gold is worth today. It's a lot. So every time you see that word, a talent, it's about equal to 70 pounds. It's a lot of gold, a lot of silver, and a lot of bronze. These people gave exceedingly. Now, pretty much this is the inventory. This is all the materials that were used. You get kind of a synopsis of all the different things that were used. Now, what I want you to notice there is you notice how in verse 21 and following, it reads like all of a sudden, it, it, this is coming from a different place. This is the inventory. They go back over. They call it the tabernacle of the testimony. We haven't heard that before. It goes back over that it came from Moses, the service of the Levites, Bezalel and Aholiab. If you're thinking about this, you realize that this section reads like it comes from a different place. And the reason I bring this up is because if you were to go to school and they would talk to you about the, the Torah, the first five books, you'd learn about something called source criticism. And source criticism, there's a lot of scholars who believe that the first five books of Moses were actually compiled from a number of sources and were put together at a later date. The reason I bring this up is because this is one of the proof texts that they use for that. 
They say, doesn't that read like it's coming, like all of a sudden you're getting all this stuff, and then all of a sudden it breaks out again and starts explaining things to us that we already know. They give us all this inventory, which we haven't had before, and it tells us about Bezalel and Holy. We've already gotten these guys a number of times. So I wanted to bring that up because some people struggle with the reality that Moses never wrote all five books. And I'm here to tell you, nowhere in it does it say that Moses wrote all five books. It doesn't say that. We assume that and our traditions hold to some of that. But nowhere in the first five books does it say Moses wrote any of this. You don't get it one time in the book of Genesis. So I bring that out because sometimes people use the idea of source criticism where there's multiple people who wrote these five books that were compiled later and they use it to disprove the Bible and say, well, Moses never wrote it. You guys believe Moses? And nowhere does it say that Moses wrote it. So whether or not Moses penned all of it or parts of it or none of it, that doesn't mean anything to inspiration. Because inspiration has nothing to do with a person. It has everything to do with the God who inspired them. And if God can speak through a donkey to Balaam, then God can inspire any old Joe, no matter who they are, whether we know them or not, to be used as his scribe. Does that make sense? So I bring that out because I don't ever want you to think that source criticism is going to make you lose your faith. Remember, what do we always say about the Bible? When the Bible remains silent, what? We should be also. And so even though a lot of our Bibles say the first book of Moses, the book of Genesis, the second book of Moses, the, the text itself doesn't say that. Someone put that title on it. And what's interesting is if you go back to the Hebrew, they never call it Genesis. They call it Bereshit, which is in the beginning. Exodus is Shemar. It's just the first. They just take the first word about it and they call it that. The book of Leviticus our, our translation, the first words is now the Lord and the name of Leviticus for people who are Jewish is Vayikra, which is now the Lord said. So it's interesting. So these names, like the first book of Moses, it's a little misleading. It's like the chapter breaks in your Bible. Guess what? Never inspired that way. Someone put them in later. All the verse breaks, they put them in later so we can grab them. I don't think it's wrong, but I'm also not going to hang my theology on chapter breaks. Or verse break. Someone did that later. Not part of the inspired text. So I bring that out because I realize that some of you guys, you guys, you go to school, you read books, and you're like, oh, what do we do with this source criticism? And they believe that there's five primary authors of the first five books, and they J, E, D, and P. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. If you look up source criticism, you can have fun with it. So there's a lot of these different theories. What's interesting is that as... As wise as the source criticism is, they always end up in la-la land at some point. So how they came up with, you know, I know how they came up with five primary sources, but even that is so speculative. You don't know what to do with it. But there's a good chance, there is a good chance that the first five books of Moses, what we call the Torah, were actually compiled in or after the exile to Babylon by a later source. I don't think it has, we have no problem with that. If that's the case, we just don't really know. But Moses probably didn't sit down and write all five books straight out because it would have been weird for him if he was the most humblest man who ever lived to actually write that in his own book. Because you're going to find that in the book of, of Deuteronomy. It says Moses was the most humble man who ever lived. And you and I would know that if I wrote Daniel's the most humble guy who ever lived, you'd be like, oh yeah, right, Pastor Daniel. Right? Like if you were, you'd never say it, right? 
So when you get things like that, he even talks about Moses' burial in the book of Deuteronomy. How do you pull that off? Ha-ha. Whatever Moses did or didn't write, I don't think it has any really bearing on if this is God's word or not. But I thought it was important that I bring it out because this is one of those places where you're like, oh yeah, this is how we bring that out. Okay, so next, chapter 39. We get into all the gear for the priests. And I like this about the Lord. The Lord wanted his priests to look fine, and so he got them a whole getup. Look at verse 1. Of the blue, purple, scarlet thread, they made garments of ministry for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 2. He made the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads to work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen into artistic designs. They made shoulder straps for it to couple it together. It was coupled together at its two edges. Verse 5. And the intricately woven band of his ephod that was on it was the same workmanship woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread of fine woven linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they said onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold. They were engraved as signets are engraved with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now, all of this we looked at in Exodus chapter 28, and we went through it specifically. The ephod was what looks like the apron. Notice it's very decorative and colorful. It's got a sash. So this is underneath that, that breastplate is this decorative. It almost looks like an apron. Now, I like this about the Lord because the Lord's got a sense of style. You know, and it's, I think it's, it's not a bad point to make. God's a designer. And so the priests who are ministering to the Lord, he doesn't make them look frumpy or dumpy. He, he actually, he dolls them up a little bit. It's kind of cool. There's blue and purple and there's scarlet thread. There's, there's gold thread weaved in it. Notice at the end of this, it starts talking about the names of the children of Israel. This is going to be the key. Remember that we, ha- we have it on the shoulder pads. So we're going to have it on the breastplate. The priest's job was to bear the people before God and God before the people. That was their job. Their job was to stand in the gap between humanity and a holy God. Right? Now, again, Jesus is the great high priest. So all of this ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus. When Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself and bore them on our behalf unto the Lord. So Jesus is that mediator. There's one mediator, the New Testament says, between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But as we said in 1 Peter chapter 2, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, that we're a kingdom of priests. And so just as Jesus, he's the one mediator, God asks each one of us to stand in the gap between an unbelieving world and him and to bear the struggles of people in his place. So we, as the body and blood of Jesus, as the body and the hands and feet of Jesus, we have a mediatorial role as well. Jesus is real. You're either in with Jesus or you're on the outside. That's a hard statement for people to accept, but it's the truth. As we heard, the fencing around the courtyard of the tabernacle reflected that. There's no middle. You're dwelling with God or you're not. 
We're so happy that you're a part of the Jesus is Real Radio family. Jesus is Real Radio is a listener-supported program. We want to let the whole world know that Jesus is real. Your donations help make this possible. You can become a monthly supporter or give a one-time gift by text message. It's easy. Simply text your gift to 855-910-8300. That's 855-910-8300. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram have become a regular part of our everyday lives. And we want to be sure to encourage you to check out Pastor Daniel's Facebook page, Twitter feed, and Instagram. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow the links. Pastor Daniel shares two-minute video messages throughout the week on his Facebook page. Log on to JesusIsRealRadio.com and follow Pastor Daniel. Next time on Jesus Is Real Radio, Pastor Daniel will take us to the end of the building of the tabernacle when the work was completed. Although Moses brought the instructions to the people, they accomplished it together. You've been listening to Jesus Is Real Radio with Pastor Daniel Fusco of Crossroads Community Church. Next time, Pastor Daniel will continue teaching through his series entitled Tabernacle. Until then, may God bless.